This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Episode 98 of the Equalizer podcast. The calendar has turned to March. We are closing in on 100 caps as a podcast. And what do you know? We've got an NWSL schedule. And more importantly, we've got an NWSL commissioner. I'm Dan Lawletta, John Halloran, Chelsea Bush along for the ride this weekend. And guys, Lisa Baird is the brand new NWSL commissioner. Uh, full disclosure, never heard that name in my life before uh, earlier in the week, but my early impressions of her, very, very strong. And good news that this is now out of the way, and there's somebody who in a week's time will be in the position to hopefully lead this league into the future. A uh, very simple way to put it, but uh, what did you guys think when you saw the news, and what have you thought of uh, you know what's happened so far? Yeah, uh, full disclosure here as well. I, I did not know who she was, um, but I like her resume. She has extensive marketing experience with some very uh, big names, you know, NFL, U- U.S. Olympic Committee, things like that, um, that I think that she, she brings more to this role than anyone I can think of before. So the potential there is extensive. I like the answers that she's given. So I'm, I'm cautiously excited. Just the caution there is more just because it's the NWSL and well, I just don't get my, my hopes up all that high anymore. I would rather be surprised than disappointed, but I think this, this looks from every angle, looks like a really good call for them. I, I think um, you make a good point, you know, I, about her resume. And I like the fact that she's worked with us soccer as part of being on the Olympic committee, but not for us soccer. So she's not a us soccer insider, but she's not necessarily a U.S. soccer outsider. So she should have a little bit of the pulse of the politics without, um, you know, having a seat at the table, so to speak. So hopefully that will allow her to navigate through what really is. I mean, she's coming into a pretty tough spot in the sense that this U.S. soccer relationship with the league needs to be dissolved and neither side can seem to figure out the best way to dissolve it. And now she's going to be running that show. Yeah, and as kind of a, a little bit of a side note, I do like that she was the one who, who did the branding to Team USA for the Olympics. So it's always been something that I thought was very catchy. It's, it's taken off like fire. I like it. I also thought in her introductory call the other day that she did not answer questions that she wasn't ready to answer, but she didn't evade the questions. I, you know, I mean, and look, how people perform in front of the media is often a snapshot that is not accurate in terms of how they're actually going to do their job. But I think there's been too many people who've been trotted out as the face of the NWSL who are not willing 
to give the answers that people want to hear. And she didn't necessarily give the answers that people wanted to hear, but she said, look, I'm just new. I'm not ready to comment on that yet, but she was aware of everything that was being asked and a few of the things that were asked she actually gave somewhat extensive answers on. So, um, you know, it's very early. She doesn't even start the job for another week, but it seems like maybe they got this one right. John, you want to jump in on Lisa yeah, Baird? I'll add two thoughts. Um, one, I think from the the little bit that I know, as you know, both seeing the release and, and what she talked about in the press conference uh, with the media, is that the brand uh, side of it, the brand awareness, the marketing side of it is important. The league needs money. The teams need money. A lot of us want to see the players paid more. We know the owners just uh, decided that they were going to spend a lot more money with this allocation coming up. We know that the league needs to staff a front office. We know that the league is rebuilding its media arm. Uh, we know that all of these things take money. And the league coming out of a World Cup year got one big sponsor. And it's great that Budweiser jumped in, but I think most of us were hoping or expecting, and I think that includes the owners, were hoping or expecting that there would be more to follow. So if she can push the league in that direction to bring on some more national sponsors, some big sponsors, that will be huge to the long-term success and financial stability of the league. The second part of the question, though, is there th this job also entails an operations segment. You know, this is the person who is going to be there to run the league essentially day to day, to be making decisions, to be approving trades, um, to be handling weather issues, which we've seen come up and, and handled in maybe not the best way, whether that's air quality issues or hurricane issues <laughs> or heat issues that or snow, uh, as we saw last year in Chicago. And there, there also needs to be that side of the job. So she has two parts of the job. And, you know, whether long term they bring in somebody else to handle the day-to-day the -day ops is, is, is a question we can ask. But for now, it's her. And that is also a part of the job, which I think overall has been missing in large part over the past few years. So if, uh, if she can do both, that's awesome. But I think it, it was curious to me how much she focused on the brand side of it. And, uh, just, just made me a little bit, I don't know if hesitance is the right word, but it made me think, Hey, you know, there's a, there's a day-to-day -day operations part of this job. And as you mentioned, that management agreement with USSF is tricky too. So she's got a lot on her plate. Um, I'm hopeful. I hope she does a great job. I think we all want to see this league take the take the next step forward. Um, so hopefully she can she can do that. And I've been saying for years the league needs a better face. The league needs a better mouthpiece, and it doesn't necessarily have to be your commissioner. But I think Jeff Plush and Amanda Duffy, and you can say whatever you want about what kind of job they did. I don't think either one of them effectively promoted the league just with their presence. I think you could re-rack the Lisa Baird conference call the other day and get a lot more out of it than you could have gotten from any media availability that Jeff Plush or Amanda Duffy ever gave. And it's interesting because a few days before this news came out, MLS had its media day ahead of season 25 in New York City. 
and I had all kinds of people tweeting me, notably Jonathan Tannenwald, who's one of the uh, reporters that does double duty, basically saying, look, Don Garber is the mouthpiece of MLS, and an event like this or somebody like that would really do the NWSL some good. And lo and behold, Garber's on TV um, during the Nashville opener. I'm sitting here recording. I've got the LAFC game on. He's now in LAFC. And I don't know if he's on TV or not, but they got a shot of him in the booth. He's a visible face. And, you know, you see him and you think Major League Soccer. Maybe you love him. Maybe you hate him. But there's got to be a face of this league. And, you know, hopefully Lisa Baird becomes that or is able to, like you said, John, maybe they'll bring in somebody else to kind of split the job in two. Because, yeah, the you know, I think you can do the operations part a little bit more behind the scenes maybe than you can do the branding part. I think the branding part is vital because you can have a great operation, but if you're not making any money, it doesn't matter. Well, and there's two parts of the brand job, too. There's the one that you're talking about, which is the public-facing side, and then there's the other one, which is where you're going in – to meetings with fortune 500 companies and saying, Hey, you know, let's put a deal on the table. And she claims that she already heard from contacts at different companies after getting the job. Now that doesn't mean they're all ready to do business with her. It could have just been congratulatory, but you know, it sounds like, you know, she already knows people at some places and that, you know, this could be a positive step for everybody. So, you know, let's hope for the best here. You can't, I mean, honestly, I don't mean to be overly negative, but the fact that they only got Budweiser out of the World Cup, especially a World Cup in which the U.S. won and all of the U.S. players play in this league, I think all of us think they should have done a little bit better. So, Oh, for sure. And know, Budweiser was during the World Cup. That I mean, I'm sure it was because of the World Cup. If they didn't get Budweiser coming out of the World Cup, that was during the World Cup. Yeah. So, I mean, they don't they, there's not a, a, a gigantic bar here to clear. She brings in one or two sponsors. She's she's doubled or tripled what was done before. And the same thing happened in 2015. And there was a pretty contentious conference call, I think, before the championship match with Jeff Plush, who was the commissioner at the time, asking him, you know, why did you only get what is it, Cutter, I think, that came in after the 2015 World Cup? Yeah. And, you know, there, there was no answer. So, yeah, I think it's I don't want to say do or die, but I think within a year or two, if there's not significant uptick in sponsorship, then I think we, you have to start questioning whether or not this league, you know, whether it's the sport or the league, but I think you have to start questioning whether it's going to be long-term viable because, you know, I don't know how long you want to go on quite at the level that they've been at here for the first seven years. Yeah, at some point the, the owners are going to want to recoup their investment and, and the money that they've put into this, whether yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> through expansion fees or – or, you know, brand partnerships or rising attendance. But you're right. There's, I mean, there's a revenue side of this equation. And the other thing I found interesting was that while they had the call going on, it was Lisa Baird and Arnhem Whistler, who owns the Red Stars. And Arnhem's, I guess, kind of been like the, the face of the ownership group since the announcement that Duffy was leaving for Orlando. And uh, he, let's say he chimed in a little bit on unprompted on numerous occasions which i thought for the most part did not come off great but two things he said that were interesting one on the positive side was he basically said that lisa Baird turned the tables on the owners in the interview process and started to interview them about what success would look like that she was very prepared but on the negative side and i'm i can't believe he went there he jumped in on an expansion question and again 
said the near-term goal is 14 teams. And, you know, we kind of slow walked it. That was his word in part to wait for a new commissioner to come in. But I think he put an awful lot of pressure on her right off the bat with that comment. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, right. You, you got to almost double the number of teams. Yeah, and they got 10 because Louisville's coming in next year, even though, you you know, that's the first time I think anybody at the league has mentioned Louisville since the announcement, right, which was in October. You know, you can't find it on the website, but I was I was shocked that he um, that he kind of came in and, and, and put that on her plate right away, rather than at, least, at the very least letting her speak for it herself. But uh, the fact, you know, they did, and I did speak to one other owner, after that, and the you know the consensus was that she was really well prepared, and I think you could tell by the way she addressed the media um, after being announced. So she'll do it again, I think, it, or at least she'll be at Red Bull Arena for the She Believes Cup. I don't know if she'll do a press availability or not. And then uh, two days later, she'll officially be the NWSL commissioner, working out of New York, by the way, for the most part, which I think is interesting. Um, Chelsea, any other commissioner thoughts? Um, no, I'm just I'm excited to see her get to it. And uh, you know, not too bad. You know, the 15th was the date that Duffy went to Orlando, and it was what less than two weeks until they actually um, announced somebody. So good stuff. So Lisa Baird, and new NWSL commissioner, that'll take effect officially in about a week. But you also get the sense that she's been doing the job. Already, maybe since even before she got it. No word either on a term for how long her contract is. Um, you know that, and maybe you know maybe one of the things that uh, she'll be able to do is convince the league maybe to allow some of those things to be a little bit more uh, public in terms of information. All right, that's uh, our segment one. We'll come back. We've got a schedule. We've got the makings of a huge trade. She Believes Cup starts on Thursday, so plenty more to talk about on episode 98 of the Equalizer podcast. Episode 98, Equalizer podcast, segment two, with a reminder to please check us out on the web at equalizersoccer.com. And for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. Anytime big news goes down, we'll have great content for you, both in front of and behind the paywall. But if you want to get behind that paywall, it's EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And also a friendly reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer podcast. Today, Dan with Chelsea and John U20s with Laura Harvey at the helm are trying to get themselves into the U20 World Cup so far, so good, but it might not be quite as straightforward going forward. They beat Cuba 9-0. They beat the Dominican Republic 4-0. They beat Honduras 11-0, and that got them into the round of 16 where they beat St. Lucia 6-0. Now they've got to beat Canada and either Jamaica or the Dominican Republic, and the winner of that semifinal, which will be Friday, goes to the U-20 World Cup. Yeah, that that drawing Canada in the quarterfinals is is massive. Uh, the fact that one of those teams is not going to go to the U20 World Cup is 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 pretty big, I think. And I mean, I'm I'm kind of glad to see that. Like, I feel like in um, the senior level, you know, 
it pretty much always ensures that U.S. and Canada are going to meet each other in the final. Um, so I, I like they maybe didn't tweak it as much as, as they could have. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting to watch. And it's actually harder for the U-20s to get in their World Cup than it is for the senior team because the U-20s have to play their three group games, and then they've got to play a round of 16 and a quarterfinal and a semifinal as opposed to three group games right into the semifinals. Now, I'm not speaking about the competition one way or another, and, uh, you know, the, you can – you know, we could debate the format of this tournament all the way around, but it's, you know, I, I don't know why it's harder for the U-20s to qualify than the senior team. That makes that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad. That, but there are teams competing that I'm like, I don't know if I've ever seen their senior team even anywhere. So. Who's that? Oh, like like Saint Lucia. Yeah, like Saint Lucia, like like El Salvador. Like there, there are teams that I've I, mean, I know they exist. I've just never happened to come across them. Well, I mean, you know, I guess you hope that by playing decent in the um, in the U twenties that that eventually spills over into the senior team. I mean, it, you know, that hasn't necessarily been the case on the women's or the men's side. A lot of yeah, the I mean, I feel like we success aren't good. Yeah. We we say that a lot, but while well, certain individual players will go on, I guess maybe you can make a case for the U.S., although, I mean, they haven't won a U-20 World Cup since 2012. That's almost a decade ago now. Uh, I don't feel like any other team has seen the same, the correlation between success at the youth level translating to the international level. Oh, you're right. North maybe Korea Japan. was great. Spain maybe is getting there. They've been yeah. good at the youth level. You know, and I, I think it's the same on the men's side. And that's every two years, by the way, that is the U-20 World Cup. So that's not, you know, since 2012. That means 14, 16, and 18 have gone by without them winning. How about the scores here in the round of 16? 6-0, 6-0, 9-1, 4-1, 12-1, Trinidad and Tobago beat Puerto Rico on penalties, and we're still waiting for a Guyana-Cayman Islands result. So, yeah, it's a round of 16, but it's not exactly, you know, the not exactly beating the doors down with competitive matches here so far. Yeah, the that's other... what... Good. I was just going to say, that's you know, I've watched some of that, and that's what makes it so hard to judge this U-20 team under Harvey's. Their, their opposition so far has been so overmatched. I have genuinely no idea if this is a great team or just really athletic. I wish I, I could provide more analysis than that, but it it's you you just can't. All they they have to do is kick the ball past the midfield. Somebody runs runs onto it, rounds the defenders, and and scores. It's they're making it look really easy, and I hope that that is a testament to the players that she's picked and the players how the players have been developed and how they had she has them set up. But I, I genuinely cannot tell, except for the fact that they are s- several 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 levels above what they're playing, and I mean no disrespect to those other teams. They they don't have the college system. They don't have the support that the U.S. does. They don't have all these other youth teams. They don't have Olympic development program. And I could go on and on and on about how we the U.S. can can create youth teams that the other te- other countries can't, but the fact remains that the U.S. is so much better that you, you just can't get an idea of, of what they're going to do against a Canada or who else, if they do qualify, who they're going to going to meet in the actual World Cup. 
And the other interesting thing to note is I tweeted before this started that anyone who was kind of missing Sophia Smith on the She Believes Camp roster, that she was kind of held back from that because it's probably more beneficial to stick with the U-20s, especially because I don't think she really is a contender, barring a bunch of injuries, to make the Olympic team this summer. But then they barely play Sophia Smith and say that she's got a nagging little injury and they're you know, she's got a long year ahead and, and they're holding her, you know, they're holding her back a little bit and she's made an appearance here and there at this tournament. But, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm never a fan of holding players back as precautions unless there's a real reason for it. Uh, but I'm hoping we're not at the beginning of a year where, uh, uh, Sophia Smith is, you know, pulled in too many different directions and maybe, um, you know, can't stay healthy. We, I think we've seen a number of players in her position get tired in their first league season just because they've had you know there's just too much going on with international duty and the you know the league season is longer and so they don't get as much an off season as they did when they were in college so i think that's an interesting little well little subtext but i mean that kind of is i feel like the reason she's not been playing much they obviously don't need her she does have a long a much longer year coming up than any of the other, other players so i guess my question is do you think if the u20s was world cup wasn't this year qualifying wasn't right now that she would be on the she believes roster I think she would have been in the camp. I mean, I feel like we're just jumping the gun a little bit because she entered the draft early and went number one. And all of a sudden, I mean, that doesn't necessarily to me say, oh, yeah, she's now one of the, the 23 best players in the country. Well, I, think I think she's great. I think she has well, potential. But Well, I think it's because she was in the she was on the Olympic camp roster, um, the qualifying roster, and then didn't make it onto the She Believes roster. I think just the point I was making was that, it makes sense for, to send her to the U-20s rather than put her on that She Believes camp roster, but then they, to not use her a lot raises a bit of a red flag for one reason or another. I mean, we'll see. Maybe they're saving her because now they have more important matches and the competition gets gets tighter. We'll see what happens. But I get, I always feel some angst when I see that a player is being rested for precaution, especially young players. John, are you still with us? Any U-20 qualifying <laughs> thoughts? I just think, well, two things. One that we, as we talked about in the break, that the U.S.'s path here is pretty brutal. I mean, they've got to win both of these games. They've got to beat Canada, and then they've got to beat Jamaica, who beat Canada in the group stage. So these are two legit games coming up. There's a possibility that the U.S. isn't going to be playing in the U-20 World Cup. Uh, they've got to bring it both of these games. And then the other thing, which I think ties into this this smith conversation a little bit is the qualifying schedule just playing a game every 48 hours it's inhuman it's just not right it's a poor setup and if you have somebody who has some sort of a you know a soft tissue injury they could be in real trouble trying to play through that schedule that's different than playing 30 minutes a game or not playing at all but this is it's an inappropriate schedule uh for athletes of this caliber. And especially when you've got to have the games. So you can't just say, all right, well, we'll flip the entire starting 11 for the next game. You've got to have these games. You've got to have your best players available. And yeah, they're going to play Canada Wednesday and the winner of that plays on Friday. You got to like break it up into two tournaments where you have a, a preliminary round and then you come back. You know what I mean? You come back, uh, a month or two later for the knockouts or something like that, where there's a break so that you can space these things out a little bit more appropriately. 
And we talked a lot about that at the Senior World Cup, where the U.S. women, I think, played on the last match day to start. So they basically had a, you know, in some cases, three or four days less time to play their right. seven matches. And then I think up until the final, they were always the team on shorter rest. And, you know, they pulled it off. But it wasn't a day or two days. It was, you know, it was legitimately a month to play seven games and this thing started on February 22nd and it's going to end on March 8th and really you know the final is the 6th so that yeah it's it's very tight and inhumane to be honest it's not right that's the easiest way to put it it is not right to put these athletes in this position you are asking for somebody to get hurt all right one of the players who was on board for the US senior team winning the world cup was Becky Salabrun and she was in the news this week as well as it appears, a trade is finalized, close to being finalized, that will send her to Portland, and it looks like there's not going to be a whole lot going back to Utah, though some of it will be allocation money, and supposedly they've got uh, a player up their sleeve. I find this trade to be so fascinating, because you've got the angle where, you know, do the national team players have too much control, and do too many people want to and ultimately wind up in Portland, but I can also see a case for trading a 34-year-old central defender who is, you know, on the downside might sound harsh, but she's not quite the player she was in 2015-16. Who knows how much longer she plays after uh, 2020. She didn't, you know, not to say that she didn't want to be there, but she wanted to be in Portland. Um, but also Utah sent a lot of players out without getting a whole lot back in terms of bodies that they're going to be able to Put on the field this season, so I'm really fascinated by this trade, John. I know you were, you and I were part of, you know, getting to the nitty gritty of this trade happening. Um, any uh, inside info or, or thoughts on the return or anything about this move? Well, I have two. I think there's two ways to look at this. I think we can look at the Utah side of it, and then I think we can look at the Portland side of it. I think from Utah's perspective, I think exactly what you were thinking that. Listen, this is fine that they let her go, especially if that's what she wanted. But what are you getting in return and are you getting a fair value? Unless they do something really spectacular with that allocation money, I can't see how it's worth it. Because we know that owners can use the allocation money for other things. But I think we can also fairly assume that Deloy Hansen doesn't need that money to do other things. That he can cover his operating costs. So now we're talking about using that money specifically to bring in somebody. Whoever they bring in has to be as good as Becky Sauerbrunn to make that trade worth it. And I'm not sure that player exists in the market of women's soccer right now. And as you mentioned, this is now, I believe, if I'm counting right, the sixth player that they've lost this offseason. Uh, Erica Timrak retired. Stengel got traded. Miramontes retired. Uh, Sauerbrunn is now leaving. Laddish retired and Moros was waived. And Doniak got traded. Okay, so seven. And they got zero players back for those three. Well, I, I believe there is actually a player coming back for Sauerbrunn, but they got zero players back for Stengel. And Doniak, which I found weird even at the time, because this is like a win. This seems like a win now team, and they've won nine games the last two years. They've been close both times. I also think if you just look at it, Chelsea, from a soccer perspective, if you are the 
Royals and you take out all the politics and who wants to go where and whatnot, isn't the player you would trade if you were trying to go younger, Kristen Press, because A, she probably has more value, and B, you don't want to blow up your defense when your defense is still pretty good, and you probably, I would say you keep Rodriguez over Press because she'll be there the whole year and Press won't be? Uh, I don't know if I would say that. Um, if you take every, it's just, it's hard to say, but you take everything else out of it, you're just looking for an older player to trade away to go younger. I mean, here's the thing. One striker can change the game. I don't know if I'd say that about one center back. One center back can screw up and change the game in a negative way, but you have a goalkeeper behind you. You have fullback. You have another center back. You have a defensive midfielder. You have other players that that can help, you know, the, the build a defense. But I think that the Kristen Press is someone who can take a game on her back and win it for you, and and that's extremely valuable. And I I think between the two, I, I'd probably hold on to Press. Can I put you on the spot, Chelsea? Sure. Do you think that Portland upgraded their defense by bringing in Sauerbrunn and uh and and lost on it? Is that an upgrade overall? Yes. See, I think so too. I think this puts them into like instant contender um, because of no, they still, are good. I was just gonna say I'm still figuring out kind of how exactly they're gonna work, and I'm I'm suspecting maybe a three back. You have Menges, Sauerbrunn, and and Catherine Reynolds, right? And then maybe you have Klingenberg and Carpenter as your wing backs. Yeah, I don't know how Parsons will, will arrange it, but I just think you bring in a player of Sauerbrunn's quality and experience. That's an instant upgrade. I do think she's better than Sonnet. And you look at North Carolina, who I don't know how much better they could have gotten. Look, they ran over everybody this year, but I don't think they have gotten any better. And I think if you look at O'Reilly retiring and Matthias probably not coming back, uh, until midseason, and then we don't, you know, you don't exactly know what you're going to get out of her. Then Zerboni's gone, so their midfield depth's a little bit weaker, which they've had to rely on in the past. And so now I think, you know, Portland, between you know, the moves that they've made already, uh, bringing in Smith, and we'll see what happens with Weaver. I think she's kind of a wild card, but um, between that and Sauerbrunn, and I think they're still looking to make at least one more move, Portland. So, they, I think there's a big potential there that they're right back in the championship next year. They're also supposedly using allocation money to go chasing people. So how much could they have possibly sent to Utah? Now, there's speculation that they might be sending them money in future years while Salabron is there. But if you're Utah, don't you have to die on the hill that if we're making this trade, we need Emily Mengus? I think they're going to just have to rebuild at this point, right? Or I, that doesn't even make sense, though, because you've got Press and Rodriguez and Vero, and you're not going to—they're not going to want to rebuild. So I don't know what—I don't know what they're doing. I don't know where they're going to go with this. And they got Scott and Diana Matheson allocated. Those—you know—that's more veteran players. I just—I don't get a sense that that they know what they're doing. I don't get well, a sense that they're deliberately. Possible. I mean, not to be to be mean. I just. I don't get a sense that the, they're deliberately rebuilding, and I don't get a sense that they're really going for it. I, I just – they kind of feel like they're floundering a little bit. And, like, look, we we said, you know, earlier, take everything out of it. If Becky Sauerbrunn wanted this trade, it automatically puts Portland in a better position. And maybe Utah could have said, yeah, I want Emily Menges, but 
we've seen this happen time and again when there are certain players in this league, they pick where they want to go, and and the teams pretty much have to make it happen. So I don't. I think it's it's fun to speculate. We'll take politics out of it, but you can't really. But if you go back to the Morgan trade, that was a legitimate trade that helped Portland win a shield and a title and did not do a lot of favors for Orlando. I don't feel like we're headed toward this being that same kind of trade. No, but I think that is the extreme example of of a trade just going very, very badly because someone wanted it to happen. And then look, I think Orlando wanted – Morgan as much as Portland. Yes, absolutely. So, so again, you put Portland, it puts them in a good position. At that point, they can demand whatever they wanted to because Alex Morgan wanted to go to Orlando. So you have now, to look at where the power lies in these trades. Would you guys both agree that when or, when Utah traded allocation money to Chicago for the eighth pick, that they were not anticipating doing this? Because if you're getting allocation money to sign a player in this deal, why would you trade money? For the number eight pick, unless you're getting just an exorbitant amount in this deal here, I don't. I, I I would agree, and I think that's what Chelsea was saying. That there seems to be part of this was they didn't have a coach or didn't know for sure who their coach was going to be, so there wasn't this overarching strategy. Because I think that we've seen. And, and I know this model has not worked in other sports and even in other, in, in men's soccer, but in the NWSL, the coaches are really the general managers, I think, for most teams in terms of making the yeah. decisions of who they want and who they don't and who fits their system and who doesn't. And so Utah heading into the draft, not having a head coach in place, you know, they had an interim who then, of course, did not get the job. I don't know what their strategy is, and it may have changed. Like Scott may, Parkinson may have had one strategy, and then when Craig Harrington took over, he may have a different strategy. And so now you got through half of the offseason thinking one thing, and now you're switching gears, and there's still this question about, how invested they are in youth and they seem to want to go in that direction. And it seems that that's why they brought Craig in, which makes me think that, Hey, maybe you're losing all these players and let's start over and rebuild. But you have championship level veterans there with Rodriguez and press. You don't want to be doing a total tear down and rebuild. So there's just, it's just, it's like half of, they have one foot in each camp right now. And I don't think they necessarily know, which way they want to go. Yeah, I don't know where they're going to finish, but I think they are the team right now that is uh, the most questionable in terms of it's difficult to figure out exactly what they're trying to accomplish at the moment. All right, we've still got NWSL schedule and your questions to come, so we'll be back with one more segment on the Equalizer podcast. Third and final segment, episode 98, Equalizer Podcast. We're in March. We've got She Believes Cup starting on Thursday. We've got an NWSL schedule, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, it's time for the Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week, brought to you by our friends at Sports Reference. Check out their ever-growing catalog of women's sports stats on their site at fbref.com. That's fbref. 
Sheboleavescup.com. And this week, as we get ready for the She Believes Cup and the big USA-England matchup on Thursday, how about the all-time scoring list in the history of the She Believes Cup? Number one on that list will be playing for England, Ellen White. Has four goals, including the one that beat the U.S. on a brutally cold day in 2017 at Red Bull Arena. Tied on three goals, Eugenie Le Sommer for France, who's not in this tournament, plus Alex Morgan, who's not in this tournament, and Megan Rapino, And all tied up on two, Tony Duggan, Beth Mead, Camille Abelie, Anja Mittag, Yuka Momiki, and Tobin Heath. But it's Ellen White at the top of the list, and Megan Rapino, the only player one behind, will be in this tournament White on four, Rapino on three, and that is your Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week brought to you by our friends at Sports Reference. Check them out on the web at fbref.com. England, by the way, don't forget, are the defending champions at the She Believes Cup. All right, guys, um, before we get to the schedule, real quick, uh, the three players cut from camp, no surprise, were Midge Purse, Jordan DiBiase and Jane Campbell. Everybody else will be there, so there's 23. Spotlight on Casey Short. I'm guessing we'll be talking about her a lot next week. Um, NWSL schedule. I always find this about the most anticlimactic day of the year, even though I am adamant that it needs to be out sooner. Um, like Chelsea always says to me, it's a, it's just a schedule, right? It's a schedule and it's there. Um, yeah, schedule. sorry. <laughs> Basically, there there's a schedule. There are games. They're going to be played on on the, on their dates. So, you know, what stands out to me: Portland, North Carolina, midweek first meeting. Second meeting is like during the knockout phase of the Olympics. Um, I like the spread in Washington. Nobody plays in their four 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 thing. It's evenly spread out. Nobody plays in the same place twice. And it could have been tempting to bring certain teams and players into Audi Field twice. He elected not to do that. And if Orlando gets in the playoffs, and they will be glad to have this problem if they get that far, 29 days in between their last regular season game and the semifinal. Uh, but nwslsoccer.com slash schedule. Find out when your favorite team is playing. Again, I really do think it's important to do these things quicker, but that's just the way it is. But the schedule is now out. All right, let's go to questions. And um, we've got one that says, what's the deal with the NWSL TV deal? Like, do I need to have CBS All Access to watch the games? Will they be available on Twitch? Sorry, I've just found a lot of reporting on it confusing. Um I mean, CBS is going to be doing the national games. Beyond that, I've got no idea. Uh, hopefully we find out earlier than in 2017 when it was, what, Thursday and the games were Saturday when they started with Go90. Um, but I would be I would be prepared to shell out a couple of dollars if you want to be able to watch all the streams. You guys have any insights or thoughts? Oh, man, I'm just suddenly feeling nostalgic for Go90. <sighs> Wow, who ever thought we'd hear those words? <laughs> YouTube. Everybody remember the YouTube days? Hey, YouTube were, were they were good days and they were bad days, yeah. but you, you knew what it was, you knew what you were getting into with that. It just, now it kind of feels like every year it's this big unknown and I just, I would just like to, to know, you know, and not change every year and have something consistently in place. 
There were there were days at Benedictine you weren't supposed to watch the YouTube stream because it took up too much bandwidth and screwed up the output, so nobody oh, could gosh. watch it. And the ben- I feel like every Benedictine game got delayed too. Like I would come home and try to watch it on after the fact, and the YouTube would would be like three hours and twenty minutes because there was like a wind delay or a rain delay every game. It seemed like. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, so, well, I'm sure you will talk Bruin trade, but I'm curious on the allocation money coming to Utah. Utah gets multiple years of money, question mark. That's what we've heard. And is the 300 for this year for teams or just future? I'm not, I think you're asking, um, do they get 300,000 every year? And, I, and that is what we're led to believe that is 300,000 each year, uh, for teams. Um, Fred, Bauskis, I'm wondering if U.S. Soccer and or the NWSL are considering any precautionary moves due to the coronavirus situation. Uh, good question, and I'm not going to claim to be an expert. I don't think we're there yet, but to John's earlier point, the league has not proven to be very forward in handling these sorts of things in the past. So let's hope that if it gets to the point where this is an issue, um, that they get out in front of it. Yeah, do we need to talk about hurricanes at all, or does everyone get it? They're, uh, they're not. I hope. They're, they're not proven to be on top of things, and that was a lot more certain than than a coronavirus issue. Yeah, and I feel like there's no precautionary move though. Like you either have to cancel games or not. Like I don't think you start moving games, but I, I really, I mean, I don't think anybody knows where we're going to be with this in a day, in a week, in a month. So. At the moment, uh, all systems go. Uh, Siobhan Mack, thoughts on how many teams will be added to the NWSL in 2021? This is actually a good question because um, you're going to get Louisville for 10. The league wants you to believe there's going to be more. Do we want 11 for an odd number, or would we prefer 12, which would be a 25% increase? We've talked about this before. Um, I would be fine with 10 just to keep the ball moving and keep adding teams down the road. I don't know, John, what do you think? Well, I mean, it seemed like we felt like Sacramento was pretty close to getting in. Oh, they were close. Yeah, they were close. So I think there's 11. If LAFC, as everyone speculates, is serious, then maybe there's 12, and then we kind of start talking from there. But I don't think – I don't think – what Arnhem said with 14, I don't think is unrealistic. It just is dramatically faster than every movement the league has made over the past three or four years. Correct. They speak they speak about moving, but they don't. Yeah, the moves don't actually come. Right. Um, let's see. Do you have any predictions for lineups for She Believes Cup? I hope Casey Short gets some time. That's from Melissa Stevens, and I hope Casey Short gets some time with the exclamation point. Like I said, she is by far, to me, the most fascinating player on this roster. I have to think she starts at least one game, right? I don't know if I'd make that prediction just because I think yeah. we see that O'Hara and uh, – or I'm sorry, uh, Sonnet and, and Krieger probably are going to get some reps. I think she should, and I think we need to get a look at her against some top opponents in big games, but I don't – I definitely would not predict it. I'd and I'd be happy I, if I'm wrong, but I wouldn't predict it. I'd, I'd be comfortable predicting one game starting, but uh, not not predicting any more than that. Do we think this is her last stand for the Olympics? 
because her week performance can't be better than it was last year. Yeah, it's probably a fair guess, but they keep bringing her in, so they at least want her in the training environment. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't necessarily have to be. And again, to go back to the example of Allie Krieger last year, she wasn't on She Believes, and she came in that very last camp. So there's yeah, even if she doesn't play much or even at all, and she believes there's still always a shot. I find that a little different though, because Krieger wasn't like being flirted with to get on the roster and not getting there. I almost feel like 23 might be a disservice right now if he's close to knowing who he wants to take to the Olympics. Because you say, well, if they keep bringing Short back, they had to expand for She Believes over qualifying. So you bring someone in that's even farther down the depth chart, it, you know, like Campbell keeps coming in, right? And, I mean, what do you say when you see her at camp? Like, hey, nice to see you. We know you're not making the roster, but, you know, but hope you train well. I mean, We've always seen them kind of carry players along that were basically just training and, and wouldn't get ca- capped for. I mean, to go to go further back, you look at Ashlyn Harris and Alyssa Nair. They were regularly in camps for years and years before getting their first cap. And that, that's different also because it's a goalkeeper and you can't, you know, play for in the, at a field at once. But it's just it's not unheard of. I mean, they have to have. Somebody, she's clearly there on the depth chart somewhere. Just may not be where where most people want to see her, or may not be where most of us can understand why. But I think the the tricky part is that you, you're, he's probably only going to bring six defenders to the Olympics, and there were seven on the World Cup roster. So that means Short's got to beat two of those players out. That's tough. So there was. So we got what the. For the start, Sonnet and Krieger, and who am I missing? Davidson. Davidson, right. And Davidson is probably the second most interesting player, just in, just in health terms, just to see how healthy she is at this point. Um, another She Believes question, Soccer Sean, does Mallory Pugh perform at a high level at this in the She Believes Cup and edge out a solid CONCACAF Olympic qualifier showing of Lynn Williams? Uh, another good question. Chelsea, you want to lead us off? Yeah, I think that those two are probably in direct competition for a spot. And I think we can, uh, having a good She Believes is going to go longer than having a good CONCACAF. So I expect him to, to rotate those two and, and may the best player win. Williams has some added versatility that she can play the nine or out on the wing too, though. Yeah, I think right now I would probably guess that he's leaning more towards Williams. Um, she did make the, the roster over Pew for CONCACAF. She did have a strong CONCACAF tournament. Um, we'll see. I, yeah. I think, I still think, I think the door's pretty, pretty open there. I wouldn't be set on, on Williams making that roster just yet. I think Pew's got a foot in that door pretty firmly right now. But do she's we, the one who's gonna have to push the door open and, and yank Williams out, not the other way around. Do we, I think if it's even, it goes to Pew. And do we think Pew is, Possibly a player where somebody above the coaching level maybe pushes for inclusion on the roster. It wouldn't surprise me. She's kind of been pegged to sort of the next face for a while, um, especially if you don't have an Alex Morgan. You're going to want to get as many bigger names, and she's a bigger name than Lynn Williams. So whatever extent they're pushing, I, I wouldn't shock me. That would be a shame if it happens, though, and she it would, deserve for it. Sure. And and not just for whoever she would edge out, but for Pew herself, because every athlete has some moment where 
things turned against them, and then that was the spark that pushed them to a higher level. And I still feel like, and obviously if she plays lights out, you got to put her on the team. I still feel like long-term, I think she'd be better off in an NWSL environment week over week, not having to worry about going in with the national team. And if it's not this year, maybe she'll get that next year. But I think that's kind of important right now to Mal Pugh. I think Lynn Williams has already done that. I don't think she needs that necessarily. That's probably going to be controversial, and I absolutely think Mal Pugh should be pushing like anything to get on that roster. But I think long-term might be more beneficial if she didn't. Bev Nelson uh, sends a direct message. Any chance of explaining why Jessica McDonald is the only World Cup player who isn't allocated? And Casey Short was. Really good question. Um, for starters, the allocation list was done in December. I don't know what's changed between now and then. Uh, but, it, you know, don't be confused between the roster and the allocations. I think there's a lot more. Um, to invest in Casey Short maybe for the next cycle. I think very clearly this is it for Jess McDonald, whether she gets to the Olympics or not. I do not think she's a candidate to go to the World Cup in 2023. It's about all I got, though. Anyone have anything different than that? Just that, you know, the World Cup, it, that's honestly what happened in 2019, not what's going to happen in 2020, and these allocations are for the coming year. And so I think it's it's an idea of, of who – Flatco thinks is could could you know be a, enough part of the picture to earn a contract. I mean, obviously, Jess McDonald is still getting called in, um, but I don't think you you need to look at it as this is based off the World Cup roster. It was hey. the single biggest question I thought on the allocation list. Yeah, no, it's a fair it's a fair question because we saw we saw Krieger work her way onto that list. We saw Davidson work her way onto that list. McDonald was there at the World Cup, too. Um, I did. It was a surprising choice. Matt, is it me, or does it seem like there are players injured during the NWSL season but get well just in time for women's national team games? <laughs> I don't know how much we want to delve into that. I mean, look, there's priorities. National yeah. team's more of a priority. At certain times for certain players, yeah. it's it's. He's not the only one who thought that. I'll say that. But you know what? That's, but you're right, though, Dan, that it's if your salary is being paid by the Federation, then that's your primary employer. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, an, that's an added level of it. Yeah, sure. Ke- Kelly O'Hara had played four games in the league this year and four games, four or five games in the league last year. But her employer is U.S. Soccer. That's who's paying her contract. Her job is to be healthy for the national team. Her job is to be healthy for the World Cup, and you, you see these players, they get back to the league, and then that's when they have their surgeries. And you, I, I'm not going to fault them for that. That's they're doing what. That's where their bread is buttered. That's where they're going to make their money. That's where they're going to gain popularity to get their endorsements. Is in the Olympics and the World Cup. It is what it is. It's part of the problem with the allocation system. But yeah, they get healthy for the big tournaments because that's what their job is is to do. Well, I remember going all the way back to 2013 when this first started and asking Jim Gabara, who was coaching Sky Blue, is Kelly O'Hara going to be an outside back? And he said, no, she's too important. She needs to play up top. And lo and behold, opening day, Kelly O'Hara gets trotted out at right back. And, you know, he said, well, 
you know, we realize we've got young players. I think they, I, I don't know, they had Coco Goodson, I think, was a center back. And one of their other outside backs might have been a rookie. He said, we thought we needed some veteran help to go with Christy Pierce in the middle and blah, blah, blah. You know, was that 100% legitimate or did he get some pressure from above? It's hard to say. And another coach once told me in discussing whether a player would move positions at the behest of the national team coach, the coach said, player wasn't allocated. If I'm paying them, they're doing it my way. You want to pay them, we can talk. But if I'm paying them, you're uh, you're going to play where I want you to play. Well, we, we had some indication at the draft, right? One of the coaches indicated that Vlatko had told yes. him a preference. I can't remember exactly which coach had said it or which player that was in regard to, but there, this is already happening now. That wow. Absolutely. I believe that was Haley Mays, right? Yeah, you're, I do think it was North Carolina, and I just can't remember if it was if they were talking about her or somebody else. But you, I do think, yeah, it probably was Mace. But we know that that's already happening. It's more curious because Vlatko obviously has been on the other side of that. All right, one more. Godwin O'Coley with no World Cup and Olympics next season. Would 2021 be ideal to start an NWSL Liga MX Femenil tournament, maybe eight teams from each league? Yes, yes, and yes. Eight teams is too many, but yes, let's get this going. Anyone want to dispute me on this? Of course not, because I'm right. It's gotta, it's gotta happen. I think four teams would be good to start, and I would rather have qualification than just kind of random, uh, like we did for, um, what's the other thing? The, uh, that the Courage won. What do they call that? Champion something or other? ICC. ICC. There you go. All right. I got one for both of you before we exit the show. If we get a preseason starts like in a week and we still, by the way, don't have like firm dates and roster cutdowns and stuff. If the only thing that we have to show for allocation money at the start of preseason is some trades, Allie Riley and maybe a fee for Kaya Simons. Um, transfer fee, which I imagine was small. Is that a problem? And I keep hearing about, oh, it's great, you know, there's more money for more players. Don't we have to do better than Allie Riley as the poster child for allocation money? I don't think necessarily for two reasons. One, that money will be, at least at some level, allocated to the players who've helped build the league and who are the veterans who are keeping it as strong as it is right now. So if they make, if that money ends up going to them, so be it. But I think there was also a pretty strong discussion. Again, we heard this at the draft that some coaches didn't want to use the money this year in particular when a lot of the top players are going to be at the Olympics and you're not going to get them for much. You know what I mean? You're going to pull them in. They're going to come to you at the end of the European season in June and then leave almost immediately for the Olympics and then come back in September, you don't get a lot of value for it this year. And speaking of that, Sam Kerr and Chelsea, and a lot of people think the allocation money was a direct response to Sam Kerr toying with leaving the league, which he did, but they won the Continental Cup in England, so uh, not the trophy. I don't think anybody goes to England to win the Continental Cup, but it's the first trophy lifted in England for Sam Kerr. She believes Cup starts on Thursday. United States against England should be a good one. We'll be back next week 
For John Halloran and Chelsea Bush, I'm Dan Lawletta. Thanks for listening to Episode 98 of the Equalizer Podcast. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.